Well, good morning. I hope you've been enjoying this, the blue skies and the warm weather, as opposed to the rain that I thought was going to last forever. So God is good. Appreciate these breaks in the weather. Well, we've been just flying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are already in chapter 18 at the very last verses at the rate of speed that we're going. And you will recall that chapter 18 in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in this chapter, Jesus enters into a discourse or he, he's lecturing his disciples, his children in this passage. And the children or the disciples had been arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. They want to know where do we stand and they are, they're beginning to think about the kingdom and they realize that they're close to the king, Jesus. And they want to kind of know what their position is. and How do they treat one another? And so Jesus uses that opportunity as they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, who gets to call the shots and so forth, to enter into just some really solid, practical teaching about what it looks like for brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is an in-house lecture. This is a, uh, a discourse for his children, those that have received him. What does it look like for us to relate to one another? How should we view one another? What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? And off of the stump of humility, he builds this entire teaching on Christianity. He calls a child forth and he says, in essence, unless you're like this child, you're not even in the kingdom of God to begin with. So there's no need to argue about who's the greatest. So humility is Christianity and our walk and the way we view one another. It's all built on the stump of humility and it works its way up from there. I thought I was about to get struck by lightning for a second. Did I say something wrong, Lord? (laughs) So as he teaches us in this, and I'll read the final verses shortly, but he begins to teach us how to view one another. And the first thing he says is that we need to to go to great strides to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ's purity of soul. And he, he grants that there's a lot of evil in this world and it's always wanting to come in and push and there's this constant pressure to do wrong and be wrong. But he says, don't let it come through you. Don't you be the vessel that causes one of my children to stumble in their walk with me. And then he takes a step farther and says, keep your own heart pure because sin separates you from me. And so if there's something about you that is causing you to stumble and sin. Get rid of it. Separate yourself from it. And so he gets very stern about sin and, and, and warns us to go to great strides to avoid it in our lives. And then after all those stern wor- words, he says, but If your brother offends you. So he knows that in real life that we will cave. He knows that we will be vessels of evil. He knows that we will be instruments used to to cause others to stumble. And he knows that we will allow sin, unfortunately, to come through us. So now he's teaching us, well, what do we do when we have failed? And last week we looked at this as the teaching on the offended brother. And the one that has been offended, the one that has been wounded, is actually the one to go to the one who has done the wounding. So it's kind of like in our terms, we might say the victim goes to the perpetrator. But God would have things turned around rather than 
The one who's been wrong, just pouring out their pain and demanding justice, they actually are to care for that other person's soul, even if they are truly hurt and offended. Because that soul is in peril because it's giving in to sin. You see where humility is necessary in all the Christian life. It's God-centered and it's other-centered. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, as Peter is and the disciples, they're listening to this. And Jesus didn't say it in the verses before, but along with this attitude of humility, when you address somebody who has offended you, we have to prepare our own hearts. And of course, we need to get the, the, the uh, log out of our own eyes. But within this is also this heart that we have to be willing to forgive this person. We care about them and be forgive this person because we're trying to gain them over with our compassion and with God's truth. And of course, if we gain them over, we need to accept them back into good fellowship and right standing. So latent within this teaching is this idea of also we need to be forgiving and loving. So as Jesus is in the middle of his discourse and Peter's processing, okay, what does this mean for my life? Because I'm a disciple. I'm a brother in Christ. And there have been people along the, the, the age that have offended me, perhaps many, many times. And he's processing this information about being the one to go. And he's got this question on his heart. And it's a good question. It's a fair question. It's an honest question. And something would be wrong with us if we didn't even want to to ask this question to Jesus. It's in Matthew. And I'm just we're, we're familiar. Many of us are familiar with this passage, 21 through 35. And Jesus tells a story about the unforgiving servant. So I'm just going to kind of read the passage rather than reading it all up front. Read it as we go. So here's Peter's question that's come to the forefront of his mind. Verse 21, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? He's just talked about the offended brother. Sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times. So in the previous verses, he's having to wrestle with this idea of going to this brother that has offended him. And now he's wanting to know how many times do I have to do this in real life? That's painful. It's not easy. It, it, it requires tremendous humility, tremendous self-denial. So, Lord, I want to follow you and I want to do what's right. What is your expectation? How many times do I have to do this? The question is not, should I forgive? That's already been settled among the believers. We know the Bible very explicitly says, Old Testament and New Testament, that we are to forgive. So he's not saying should I even forgive him at all? He's saying, how many times do I need to go through this? And he suggests seven. Now, seven is a very generous offer, actually, because from man to man or the expectation between people in that community would be basically that you can you can get a, you can be forgiven after three or four offenses. And that was kind of the teaching. Actually, the rabbis taught that to the, their disciples. Go once. They ask forgiveness. You forgive twice. Yeah, you're obligated to forgive three times. You're obligated to 
forgive, but I quote a rabbi, Rabbi uh, Jose Ben Judah in 180 AD. He said, but a fourth time, do not forgive him. So there in that culture, there were expectations. That, yeah, I got some wiggle room here. I'm going to receive forgiveness up to a certain amount around three or four times. And that's kind of man's expectation. Peter almost doubles that. Seven. How seven? That's pretty generous offer, isn't it? To go seven times. Now, in our culture, perhaps you've heard three strikes and you're out. So we're kind of right around in there, too. And sometimes we apply that to our relationships. Okay, you're on two. One more. That's it. Mm -mm. Limit. There's a limit to this. In our relationship, I'm only going to go this far and then I stop. What is your as you think about this and before I go any farther, what are your limits when it comes to forgiveness? Is it one strike? Maybe you have a real short temper. One strike, you have high standards for yourself and other people. Two strikes, three strikes. How generous are we? How forgiving are we in this area? Well, God has very high expectations that we will see. So Peter asks this question. And Jesus does not hesitate in giving his answer. He doesn't say, he doesn't ask for more clarification. He doesn't ask for more qualification. He doesn't say, well, Peter, it really depends. Uh, Tell me about the person you have in mind. How evil are they? What is it that they did? What's the degree of sin that we're dealing with here? Because it's different. He doesn't ask those questions. It's remarkable without hesitation. Jesus gives his answer in verse 22. And I say to you up to seven times. Not I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And scholars are all over the place on how to interpret that exactly. But. Whatever, however you interpret it, you come out with this idea that it is an astronomical amount. No matter how you do the math, that's the whole point of this. It's an astronomical amount of times that we are to forgive, offer forgiveness. It symbolizes this. So in other words, when it comes, and again, this is between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the church family here. When it comes to how many times the answer in essence is infinity. It's unlimited. Unlimited. I love the word unlimited when it comes to Internet. Unlimited. Internet. Especially out in the boonies when it's almost like you're still on dial up. But unlimited forgiveness What does that look like in real life? I mean, how could a fellow sinner, how could me, a fellow sinner, offer you unlimited forgiveness? There's got to be a catch here. And it's almost like, I mean, if I was, if I were Peter and Jesus didn't offer the qualifying questions and the clarifying questions, I would be very ready to ask them. Because I have to, you got to put it in a nice, neat package and categorize. Surely there's got to be a catch to that answer. 
And so it's almost as if Jesus anticipated his disciples were like there with their mouths wide open. Whoa, this is new. When you go from a culture to three or four times and then a generous seven to unlimited. So he perceives this apparently. And he begins to basically give them a platform, an understanding of how this can be true. And he does it, as he so often does, by use of a parable or a story. I'll call it a king-sized story. I've broken it into four parts. So let's begin in verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, just keep in mind, we are wrestling with this idea of unlimited forgiveness. How is it possible? What's the platform? How can we even do it? And here's the story. In the Orient, it is common for monarchs or kings to have financial advisors, to have treasurers. You know, if you're if you're a big wig, you have a lot of money because you tax people and so forth. You find ways to get money. And so they put people in charge of it. So it wasn't uncommon for them at all to have certain days of accountability where they call their financial advisors, the big ones, the ones that are over everything, not the small guys. And say, so let's look at the books. What do we got here? I've put you in charge of my money. Now, let's see how it's working out. It's time for you to give an account. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents is a tremendous, tremendous amount of money. When we talk about it's the largest financial exchange of the day. And it represents 70 pound, 75 pounds of something of worth, probably like silver or gold. So one talent is about 75 pounds of gold. How would you like to have that in this day and age? But when you do the math, the debt that was owed this king was 750,000 talents. Now, just... And I know you're thinking, wow, that's a lot of money. But just to put it in perspective, you remember King Herod in the Bible? And he reigned, he was a sovereign, he was a monarch, and he reigned over uh, uh, Idumea and, and Judea and Samaria. And he taxed the people heavily. His, his annual income was about 900 talents. So that whole part of the world, about 900 talents. And Jesus is talking about a debt of 750 thousand talents. That's a lot of gold coin. That's a lot of money. And the whole point as you're listening to Jesus tell this story is you are realizing there's no way in the world he can ever pay it back. I don't even know how he squandered that much money. But he did, and there's absolutely no way in the world that that's not something that you just earn back. You can't. So this guy, financial advisor, whatever he was, was really enjoying his life. And he was very self-indulgent, probably crooked, and probably a terrible financial advisor, all wrapped up in one, to let that much money go. I mean, it just was the worst of the worst situation. And he's probably really enjoying life. On the king's dime. At the king's expense. 
And it was wonderful, it was going great until the phone rang. And he got called to the principal's office. Do you ever get called to the principal's office? You angels probably have never gotten called to the principal's office. But it is not a good feeling. I remember in elementary school, we had intercoms. I don't know if they even still do that these days. Intercoms. Uh, Mr. Burkhart, could you have Paul Montana come to the office, please? Man, your stomach sinks. This guy, he's, he's called to account. The good feeling is gone. He is in debt way over his head. Unsurpassable, unsurmountable. And of course, we know that th- this is financial metaphors for our spiritual condition before the king. Matthew Henry says, every sin we commit is a debt to God, not like a debt to an equal contracted by buying or borrowing, but to a superior, like the debt of a servant to his master by withholding his service, wasting his Lord's goods, breaking his indentures, the incurring of the penalty. We are all debtors. We owe satisfaction and we are liable to the process of the law. See, we take God's blessings for granted. We use them and we squander them as if there's no accountability, as if they are ours to do whatever we want with. And yet all the time we are accruing a debt as we self-indulge and as we squander. The king has the final say. The king is the authority and we are accountable to him. And it may seem like it works great for us until the phone rings. And we all will have that time when we have to give an account to our creator, king. And that's what happened to this guy. Verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay his Lord, repay his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. See, you don't just walk away from this, this kind of behavior. When you're in that deep, when you have abused someone's trust to that and you've spent their money, you don't just walk away from that kind of stuff. This is a crime. This is a big deal. And there's a just sentence. This is a just sentence. And I know it sounds harsh for our day and time, but in that day and time, that's how they work things out sometimes. If you were in debt, you needed to borrow something or whatever from a neighbor and you went into debt and you couldn't pay them back, sometimes you'd sell yourself or... Your kids, it's into servitude to help pay debt. So even that day, it just didn't get brushed under the rug. And sometimes you could never repay the debt and you were a slave or a servant for the rest of your life. At least that person can get some return out of his investment. But you've forfeited your freedom. So justice says somebody has to pay for this injustice. Verse 26, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. He falls to his knees. When we come before the authority or the superior to which we're accountable to, Matthew Henry says, even the stoutest of hearts will fall to their knees when they realize their fate, when they realize what they have earned and they have earned wrath. So this is too much. It's too much for any man. There's no possible way 
he can pay it back. So in essence, he's asking for mercy. He's asking for the king's mercy. He doesn't want justice because that's what the king dished. May I have some mercy? And what does the king do in this story? He does the absolute unexpected. He sees this man in a puddle of tears, perhaps. He sees the brokenness. He Perhaps he, he foresees the brokenness and the pain of the family, the wife and the children in a lifetime of servitude. And his heart is actually moved with pity and compassion over the sentence that this guy earned. He deserves it. It's that word compassion. It's the same word that Jesus used when he was uh, right before the triumphal entry. And he looks at Jerusalem. He looks at all the people and he says, oh, Jerusalem, if you just would have come to me, I would have taken you under my wings. So he sees what's going to happen based on their trajectory. So not only is this king in this story very authoritative, very powerful, very wealthy, very just, he is very compassionate. What would we do without the compassion of God? How many times have we benefited just by the sheer fact that God has compassion? And it's the idea the word has to do with actually feeling somebody else's pain. We've talked about this before. It's it's feeling it in your gut. Now, we might say today, my heart goes out to you. When somebody's telling you a sob story and you're, you're living it with them and you're feeling, sometimes we grab our stomachs. Symbolic of the pain. And so the king feels the pain and he has great compassion and pity. In verse 27, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him of the debt. It's absolutely unthinkable. He doesn't say, look, I'm a reasonable man. We'll cut it in half. We'll cut it in fourths. We'll do a payment plan. We'll consolidate all your credit cards. Low interest rates. We'll make this happen. He doesn't say, even just give me whatever's in your pockets. Just whatever's in your pockets and we're clean. He lets him go. You do not owe me a penny or a farthing. So, absolutely stunning. The king's behavior. Unheard of. It's a king-sized mercy. And you realize that as, a, as kind of a thing as it is to do, he suffers the personal loss for it. I mean, that money's gone. He, he absorbs the debt. He's the one that has to suffer for the king living. I mean, the, the debtor living high on the hog. There's a lack there that needs to be made up for. An enormous cost. Now, if we stop just right there, what a great story that would be, Right. I mean, you, this guy's in over his head and this wonderful king. At first, he gives his sentence, but then he has compassion. He says, no, I'll just let you go free. But if the story stopped there, it really wouldn't answer Peter's question. Because Peter would say, well, yeah, that's kind of like perfect circumstances. But what do we happen when that person comes back again 
And then comes back again. And then comes back again. What have they kept going into debt? What have they keep the offenses coming? Then what do we do with it? Life down here. Let's get out of the story world. So that's really just act one. We look at act two. To get the explanation they're looking for. Verse 28. But that slave, he went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. Excuse me one second. We don't want to flood. I've got to make sure I turn it in the right direction. I don't want to be in over my head. <laughs> Pay back what you owe. So now, now you're in the story and you're picturing this guy. And he has just been groveling in the dirt. His life flashed before his eyes. He's been forgiven. He walks away like, man, wow. I don't even know what he's thinking. But he comes, he finds somebody that owes him. Now we're on real, real small time. Small level financial transactions. It's a denarii. It's a day's wages is what the guy owes. Did I? It's a day's wages. And he chokes him. He is going to get his money. He wants every penny of it. And because the guy doesn't have it on him at the time, full sentence of justice is cast upon him. Jail. So his fellow slave in verse 29 fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. What's happening in this story, the exact same terminology. It's deja vu. The exact same terms, although it's to a lesser degree, a much lesser degree. Same method, same terminology, feeling the exact same thing that this guy just felt before his master. Not so long ago. He's doomed. Now, what would we expect this person to do? Based on the, the, the momentum of the story, what would we expect the master to do? Based on the actions of the one who owes him this money. We already have an expectation. Of how things should turn out in the story, don't we? Based on the behavior of the king. Verse 30. He was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So he puts him in prison. It's not good conditions, by the way. So look at the contrast here. So in Act 1, you had this same debt and then you had incredible mercy. And then in Act 2, you have debt and then you have nothing but justice. Cold-hearted justice. What is Jesus teaching here? What happens to those in the king's kingdom who do not reciprocate with mercy? Well, there happen to be witnesses watching this whole ordeal in this story. Just like in real life, somebody is always watching. Isn't that what we learned from Monsters, Inc.? With Mike Muskowski? I'm watching you. Always watching. You know, in real life, there's always somebody watching. And so in this story, there were some witnesses and they're like, apparently they either heard about or saw the king. Forgive this guy. And then they see that same guy go over and grab this other dude by the throat and have him thrown. And their, their eyes are wide. And what do they do? They make haste. They're going. 
they're going to tattletale because it just didn't right. There's something in them. I got to tell the king about this. I can't just let this go. People are always watching. You'd be surprised at the people that are watching and, and happen to know what takes place. It's like I go to Farmville and every time I go to Farmville, there's a place I like to eat because it's cheap. Six dollars and one cent, five dollar ham. Well, it's a hamburger tray. No cheese. Six dollars and one cent. Double nuggets. So I innocently park in the parking lot and I'm enjoying my meal. And then I get a text enjoying your hamburger. So see, people see they know what you do. They follow your life. You can't do anything in secret anymore. Same thing in this kingdom. The king finds out secrets, doesn't he? Anything that happens in his kingdom, he's going to know about. Verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. They came and reported to the Lord all that happened. They made haste to do this. So we've seen a king sized debt. We've seen a king sized mercy. And now we see how the king responds, responds in the king sized judgment. Verse 32. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that he was owed. So now that compassion, that pity just turned to anger, a righteous anger, a righteous wrath. And by the way, the king is capable of both. And he has every right to both. He has every right to exact justice. He has every right to be angry and for those to pay for their debts. But he also has every right to be merciful. He demands satisfaction. We see how the punishment answers the sin. He that will not forgive shall not be forgiven. That's what Jesus is teaching here. You don't you don't get it both ways when we're talking about kingdom principle. It's absolutely unheard of that a king would forgive so generously. And it's absolutely unacceptable that someone would receive that mercy, undeserved love, and then not, as we might say, pay it forward. There are things in the kingdom that are not designed to just stop with us. Oh, I just receive it and it stops here. But I deal with everybody else with cold hearted justice. There are things in the kingdom. They just don't work that way. And so now this man is called to account again. He has just committed another wrong. Based on the platform of the story. What's the platform of the story? The way we are able to offer forgiveness. Even against or Towards those that have perpetually, perhaps, offended us with the assumption that they're asking for genuine forgiveness. It's not on the platform of our own goodness. It's not on the platform of the expectation of the culture, because we might get counsel and say, I wouldn't forgive him. It's all with the understanding of how forgiving God is to us. That's the connection. God is, we have to see that we are in way over our heads. 
We have no right standing with God if it is not for his mercy. If we don't see ourselves in that kind of debt and God being that merciful, we're going to really, really struggle with forgiving our brothers and sisters in the family of God. It's the only platform that it's going to work. So Jesus uses that story to help his disciples understand how, yes, you actually you can do this. But here's how you have to look at it. Now, the king's wrath is right. You can't have love and mercy without wrath. They go hand in hand. You can't just let things go. So there's an accountability within the kingdom that if we're going to receive, we're also going to give. I'm reminded of Romans. I think it's chapter 13. The Apostle Paul says, Oh, no man, anything except love. That's what's supposed to continue to flow. Other things stop. Love, forgiveness, mercy. That's what is to flow. James 2.13 says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So look at that, what happened to that story. Watch how... I hate to use the word sneaky because that says it like God's mischievous and he's not... Look how wise God is. Look how wise God is. All of a sudden, he just turned our idea of justice on its head. Because the man that was in such debt, he deserved to be thrown into prison. If somebody robbed you of your identity and all your retirement and everything, I mean, what would you think? You're just going to let him go? A just sentence? You've got to pay something for it, right? So it was perfectly just a sentence. But because the king was so merciful when the... Debtor goes to his debtor and doesn't act or reciprocate with mercy. All of a sudden we say, wait, that's not just. You see how he flipped our comprehensive comprehension of justice? That's what mercy does. There's, and, and now what we want is we want wrath for this guy. We want to run to the king and say, whoa. So right in here, we have mercy and justice. And it just, it kind of traded places, didn't it? We still want justice, but it's on the terms of reciprocated mercy. God is so wise to show us these insights that help us relate to one another and do the hard things that he calls us to in life. And so... In conclusion, what do we do? We walk in the king's shoes. We follow that, that king-sized mercy. Here's a question. Who are we in this story? What character are we? Obviously, we're not the king. Or you're in trouble. But you might be in trouble otherwise. What character are we in this story? Are we the character that just wants the love and the forgiveness and it makes perfect sense for you, for me not to pay you back? But it also makes perfect sense for me to be cold and, and exacting and unforgiving. Who are we? Where are we in this story? Let me close with the scripture, Colossians 3.12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, 
just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You see, as God has forgiven us, that's the platform of mercy. So when the time comes to settle accounts, let's settle them like our king. May God bless the preaching of his word.